Good evening and welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today being a Thursday, we bring you our feature on women, but that's coming up a little bit later. Before that, we begin as usual with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa today. And that will be with Mahadi Butelezi. So do stay tuned. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, 4HH. Bringing you your news headlines from Africa and beyond, Caritas Africa and Europe at a seminar in Dakar. Africa too often overlooked by aid organizations and thousands flee violence in DR Congo. Good evening. In his homily this morning at Casa Santa Marta, Pope Francis said one must be docile to the Holy Spirit. Pope Francis cautioned those who resist the Spirit with so-called fidelity to the law and invited the faithful to pray for the grace of the docility to the Spirit. Caritas Senegal and Caritas France will host a three-day seminar in Dakar, Senegal from the 19th to the 21st of April. The theme of the seminar is Migratory Crises and Human Rights. What roles, what action for Caritas of the Sahel, North Africa and Europe? Participants will look at making proposals for migration policies that go beyond the current approach based solely on security through a partnership between African and European countries. Africa in general and North Africa in particular find themselves on the international scene after the management of migration trends around the Mediterranean took on a police form. The limits of such approach is seen in the drummers whose death toll is appalling, said a communique issued to Fidesz News Agency. Speaking at a major meeting at UN headquarters in New York on the humanitarian response in Africa, the UN General Assembly President Morgens Lickertoft said Africa is being overlooked too often by humanitarian aid organizations due to the intense media focus on Syria. Jenny Kongelosi has more. The General Assembly met in an informal session last week to discuss the humanitarian response in Africa. Mogens Lichtoft opened the meeting with a reminder that Syria is not the only nation in need of aid. The current humanitarian and refugee crisis is truly global in nature. Yes, the Syria crisis is a major contributor to that crisis. But so too is the situation in South Sudan, Yemen, Ukraine, Somalia, Myanmar, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, Honduras, Haiti, and many more could be mentioned. Yes, conflict is creating humanitarian need, but so too is climate change, the El Nino effect, political persecution, natural disasters. Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Stephen O'Brien was also in attendance. He had this to say about the current food situation in Africa. 
between the Horn of Africa, Southern Africa and the Sahel, almost 75 million people are currently food insecure. In the Sahel alone, nearly one in five children dies before their fifth birthday, and a third of these deaths are associated with malnutrition. The government of Ethiopia, currently facing the worst impacts of El Nino on the continent, has shown incredible fortitude and foresight through the Productive Safety Net program and other initiatives to address chronic food insecurity linked to El Nino. The African Union was represented at the session by Erastas Mwensha, deputy chairperson of the commission. He praised the work that African governments had done for their own citizens, but urged that further measures needed to be taken. These require new ways of a humanitarian action, particularly in expanding the humanitarian space to ensure access enforcement of international humanitarian law, use of innovative and technology, creating new partnership and financing, and enhanced role of local communities. The meeting was held in preparation for the World Humanitarian Summit, which takes place next month in Istanbul. According to UN humanitarian agency OCHA, clashes between Democratic Republic of Congo military and armed groups have forced tens of thousands of people to flee in the east of the country. Violence in the province of North Kivu has affected civilians and aid organizations since late 2014. In recent weeks, the fighting has emptied five camps of displaced people. Daniel Johnson reports from Geneva. The Democratic Republic of Congo province of North Kivu is home to nearly 800,000 internally displaced people. Clashes between the country's military and armed groups have forced 35,000 people to flee in the last three weeks, while five sites for internally displaced people have been forcibly emptied. While some of those who fled fighting have started to return, the situation remains volatile. The UN's top humanitarian official in DRC, Mamadou Diallo, has also said that they are unable to get the help they need. OCHA, the UN aid coordinating agency, stressed the importance of unhindered access to areas in need, while also expressing concern at threats to close camps for the displaced in North Kivu, where there are 53 displacement sites in all. Daniel Johnson, Geneva. Three mothers of schoolgirls abducted from Shibok in northeast Nigeria two years ago said they have identified their daughters in a recent video released by Islamic extremist group Boko Haram, the first possible sighting of the girls since a video in May 2014. Alexandra McDonald reports. 276 young girls were abducted in April 2014 by the terrorist group Boko Haram, which calls itself the Islamic State West Africa. The video just released shows 15 girls clothed in hijabs who are asked to state their names and addresses. The girls are not emaciated and show no visible signs of abuse, but some of their parents who have been shown the video break down in tears when they see their children for the first time in two years. It is the first video of the girls to surface since May 2014. Identified by their parents, at least this is proof that some of the abducted children are alive. 
The video was sent to the Nigerian government and obtained by the U.S. news network CNN. In the video, the girls plead with the Nigerian government to cooperate with the militants in order to secure their release. Boko Haram literally means Western education is forbidden, and its leader has said the abducted girls have converted to Islam. He has threatened to force them into marriage with his fighters or sell them into slavery. About 2,000 girls. And boys have been abducted by the Boko Haram since 2014, with many used as sex slaves, fighters, or even suicide bombers. A recent UNICEF report documents how nearly one in five suicide attacks conducted by Boko Haram uses a child, two thirds of whom are girls. I'm Alexander McDonald. And finally, for the first time in the history of the United Nations, candidates have been able to present themselves in an open forum before all member states. This Thursday marks day three of informal dialogues with the nine declared candidates, made up of four women and five men, to replace Ban Ki-moon. South African Deputy Permanent Representative to the UN, Mr. Mahlatsi Minele, believes the next Secretary General of the United Nations should be a good negotiator who is competent in the issues affecting Africa and able to bridge the divide between the North and the South. For the very first time, Member States are able to say, "These are the candidates. This is what they are saying, and in a way, they can kind of influence." The outcome of this process, because at the end of the day, although it is the Security Council that will recommend to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly appoints, at least the General Assembly would have participated in this exercise for the very first time in 70 years. The kind of personal traits that we're looking for is someone who is quite conversant with the issues around the UN, someone who can um, be the bridge uh, between the South and the North. Someone who can um, be a good advocate of the issues of the developing countries. Uh, someone who will be able to at least be able to present the case for Africa. And these have been your news from Africa and beyond. Have yourselves a very good evening. I am Mahadi Butelezi. If you've just tuned in, this is the Catholic View coming to you on Radio Veritas 576 AM, otherwise on 870 DSTV Audio Bouquet. And my name is Shayla. Thank you once again to Mahadi Butelezi for bringing us up to date with some of the news that made headlines today. Now, coming up, we bring our feature on women. Women on the African continent are generally treated as second-class citizens. They do not enjoy the same positions as men. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Some men refuse to invest in the education of their daughters because they say they will soon get married. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. 
But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. Women on the Forefront, a program dedicated to women who are making a difference. Welcome back to our feature on women. Today we focus on Frida, Rwanda's genocide survivor, woman active role in peace talks, and four women in the running for UN Secretary General. It is important each morning to wake up feeling a better person, not a better person, says Frida Umwaza, a survivor of the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Frida Umwaza is now a mother of three and author of the book Frida, Chosen to Die, Destined to Live. Her parents were among more than 800,000 people who were systematically murdered in the Great Lakes country. The majority of those killed were Tutsi, but moderate Hutu, Twa and others were also targeted. Miss Umwaza was one of the three survivors honored at the UN headquarters on Monday at an event marking the International Day of Reflection on Genocide in Rwanda. I wish things had been different for me and my generation, um, for my family. What happened in Rwanda, it did not only take my family away from me as a, as a teenager, but it took all the um, important points of life as a, as a teenager. Growing up, you know, no one wants to be called a snake. No one wants to be called a cockroach. Uh, so it's the genocide did not only take people; it took our dignity away at that time. It took our rights to have parents and have guidance and have the happiness that a child deserves. I would have loved that the world that watched at that time could have done something earlier when all that was being planted in the in the, in the minds of the Hutus that carried the genocide out. As we all know, genocide, as we said, it's something that takes long to be uh, in actions. I would have wished that the world would have done something different to stop that from the beginning. Do you know anything about what happened to your attackers? Um, yes, and uh, I know that um, most of them have been you know, tried and some of them are out now. I've been able to actually speak to some of them that when they came out of the, the jail. So Rwanda is a country where you actually meet those people that killed your family. You go to school with them, you go to the same market with them, you go to church with them. Around the world in conflicts like Syria, um, CAR, many children are still unfortunately forced to live in terror and they lose their families just like you experienced. Right. How does that make you feel and what's your message for those children? In times like that, you know, it's not easy to find words. All I can say is that, you know, whatever happens, if um, you get a chance to get out, it's like you've been given another chance or a second life. It's like a resurrection. They will have to face a lot of traumas, a lot of uh, issues that every survivor that faces, but my prayers goes up, up you know, out to them and my heart goes up for them. And if they ever make it out, I will say that every survivor, once a survivor, you're always a survivor. Once you survive something like that, uh, and this is also for my, you know, my other fellow survivors in Rwanda. I know that we have, you know, a lot of us have a lot of 
you know, psychological issues, anxiety, depression, and all those kind of things that we have to face every day, but you have to wake up every morning and tell yourself you want to be a better person instead of being a bitter person. What do you think has been the main thing that has got you through it? How, what is it that makes you able to cope? What is it that makes you able to forgive in this way? The one particular thing is prayer. Pray about everything. I cry, but I get up, wipe off my tears and tell myself I have to be better, uh, keep going. The hope, the hope for a future, the faith, and to pick up your your discouragement and t you know and turn them into strength, because being a hero is actually being able to give a smile to that person that has sold you death, and knowing that you know no matter what has happened to you or no matter what you've been through, your future isn't this, isn't gonna be the same as your past, and also knowing that I have children and there's a new generation after us that needs to hear our stories so they can make the next generation better. You know, your children are still quite little. You said, how, remind me how old they are? Uh, my oldest, Maxwell, is 12 and Natasha is 11 and my youngest is 8, Asher. So they're still quite small. What do you tell them about what happened in Rwanda? I have a lot of questions when they wake up sometimes, like my youngest wakes up in the morning and asks me, how did your mom like, look like? And why don't you have parents? Why don't we have, you know, why don't we have uncles? And so they ask those questions and I'm very careful the way I tell my story to them because I don't want to create hatred in the, in the way that I tell them the story. I tell them, you know, don't give them all details of like my mom being ch chopped off and stuff like that because they're quite young. But like my oldest who's 12, he's um, watched some of the documentaries and he's quite very interested in, you know, knowing and what happened and why it happened. And so telling them the truth at their age is very important and I do that according to their age. Women-led groups in the African Great Lakes region are demanding a more active and integral role in ongoing peace processes. A female activist has said she goes by the name of Julienne Lusenge from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. She's also a member of the Women's Platform for Peace, Security and Cooperation Framework, backed by the UN. As the head of a peace movement called Sofa Party, she has braved death many times, fighting to stop violence against women in areas where armed groups operate. We meet to see and to evaluate how the platform of Addis Ababa Accord is uh, going, and um, we try to evaluate how women engage with this uh, platform and uh, how we can do best, everyone who is member of the board, to try to implicate women in each level to build peace in the Great Lake region and to promote women's rights, to do more with women, to meet the political leader in the Great Lakes. We saw that the platform gives some grant to women, but we need to do more to open the door so they can be very engaged to follow up with the 
Addis Ababa Accord to restore peace in the, the region. Part of your job is to help women who have been rape victims, and part of it is to also seek justice. How successful have you been? In our country, we must pay before the case go to the court. If we don't pay, they cannot accept to take the case and to continue to uh, to facilitate access to justice for women. So, yes, we see some change, but we saw that uh, it's not enough because some officials, the high commander, they are not uh, Finnish. We like to see uh, more engagement, government engagement. We need to see more because till now women cannot get reparation. And we continue to follow up, we continue to push, but it's very tough. And uh, another thing, we saw that uh, donors don't give money to women group. The campaign to appoint a woman as secretary general has steadily been picking up steam. An online equality now campaign with that demand has gathered more than 30,000 supporters. Four of the nine declared candidates to replace current UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon are women, namely Vesna Pusik, a senior Croatian parliamentarian, Natalia Gemen, former Deputy Prime Minister of Moldova, Irina Bokova, former politician and diplomat from Bulgaria, and former New Zealand Prime Minister as well as current head of the UN Development Programme, Helen Clark. The first priority for the new UN Secretary-General should be to make the organization work, said Vesna Pusik, a senior Croatian parliamentarian. My first order of business would be to try to make the organization work, to try to run the organization as it is and as we find it now, rather than try to run an organization as we wish it would be one day and then gradually make it simpler resolve problems make it more effective as we go along never before has an effective united nations been so necessary said natalia german the former deputy prime minister of moldova i decided to become the candidate for the position of the secretary general because uh, i'm firmly convinced that the effective united nations has never been so necessary or so demanded, whether working to end poverty, defend the scourge of war, respect the human rights, or saving our planet. The 21st century represents the time for the world to show true commitment to gender equality in all its forms, said Irina Bokova, former politician and diplomat from Bulgaria, currently serving as the first female director general of the UN cultural organization UNESCO. Speaking in French throughout her opening remarks to member states, Irina Bokova said that she had developed the audacity to run for the UN stop job thanks to her long experience in government and diplomacy. I think that the 21st century has to be the century of a true commitment 
to equality between the sexes. We see today that it is not possible to reach peace or sustainable development without the equality of the sexes. Please allow me to say now that amongst the obstacles which were overlooked and ignored for far too many years is violence against women. Helen Clark is due to address member states at the UN headquarters today in New York. You've been listening to our feature on women on the Catholic View. Thank you so much for your time. Remember that should you wish to participate in this feature, feel free to send me an email, shayla at radioveritas.co.za. I want to leave my footprints on the sands of time. No, there was something that and something that I left behind. When I leave this world, I'll leave no regrets. Leave something to remember so they won't forget I was here. And that brings me up to time. This has been your Thursday's edition of The Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Pierce. Thank you once again for listening. Until tomorrow at the same time, God bless you and ciao, ciao.